Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. New U.S. intelligence on who caused the Gaza hospital explosion and more on President Biden's announcements in Israel and concerns over taxpayer money being sent to Gaza. Israel says it can't avoid civilian casualties, but it's doing everything it can to minimize them. We'll hear directly from the spokesperson for the IDF about that and why the numbers coming out of Gaza may not be accurate. An American embassy in the Middle East under attack. Protests against Western nations continue amid heightened tensions across the globe. New sanctions on Hamas operatives, while Iran calls on Muslim countries to cut off diplomatic ties with Israel. And division within the Republican Party continues to take center stage after lawmakers walk away from the second round of voting with no outcome. Could a temporary solution be on the table? President Biden backing Israel over a hospital blast in Gaza. He's also announcing major financial commitments from the U.S. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What are the president's latest comments on the hospital explosion and where is he now? Good evening to you, Tiff. So President Biden is now on his way back from Israel, back to the White House. He's expected to get here later tonight. And of course, that's after he vouched vouched staunch support of Israel during his wartime visit to the country, which is a first for a sitting U.S. president. And we just got some latest comments from President Biden regarding this hospital explosion in Gaza. Here's what he said on Air Force One and earlier during a press conference in Tel Aviv. Watch. So I don't say things like that unless I have faith in the source from which I've gotten Our Defense Department says it's highly unlikely that it was Israelis would have a different footprint and have intercepted some. Anyway, yeah. based on the information we've seen to date, it appears the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza. Israel's military today released satellite images and what they called an audio clip from an intercepted call of Hamas operatives talking about a failed rocket launch. Israel is insisting that the explosion was a result of a failed rocket launch by an Islamic jihad group that is aligned with Hamas. And a spokesperson for the U.S. National Security Council has also said that U.S. intelligence agencies have also watched a video of the launch and determined that it did not come from Israel. And that's as Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell today calling out what he called corporate media for running headlines so quickly after the Hamas-run government in Gaza first blamed Israel for the explosion. Watch. Well, the media can revise its headlines, but the shameful anti-Semitic fringe of our society has already heard what it wanted to hear. And while in Israel, President Biden also announced an agreement in which Israel will allow humanitarian aid to flow in from Egypt into Gaza, which is currently under a blockade. And President Biden also announced that the U.S. would provide $100 million in humanitarian aid to both Gaza and the West Bank. But while President Biden was trying to make sure, of course, assure Americans and people in the world that none of this aid is going to get into the hands of Hamas because there will be in 
inspections. There's already criticism and skepticism about that. We heard that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis today releasing a video and calling that, quote, a hundred million dollar gift to Hamas. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. How are the Israeli Defense Forces handling the information war and what can they do about the hostages? To hear more from within Israel, we spoke with IDF spokesperson Jonathan Karikas. Jonathan Karikas, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me, Tiffany. To begin, the White House National Security Council spokesperson said this afternoon that Israel is not responsible for the hospital explosion in Gaza. Tuesday, Hamas has said Israel is responsible from the outset. What direct evidence should observers be looking for to determine who is responsible? I don't know what else is needed for anybody in the free democratic world if two sovereign states say that uh, Israel isn't responsible and one terrorist organization claims the otherwise, I don't really know that there's a contest and really a dilemma who to believe. But if people are inclined and they want, then yes, we have, preser- we have presented clear and uh, live and verified uh, intelligence and evidence that proves that this wasn't an Israeli strike and that it was in fact a rocket that misfired The rocket was fired from Gaza towards Israeli civilians, but then it misfired just after being launched. Unfortunately, landed in the parking lot of that hospital in Gaza and caused those casualties. Sadly, this has been used and manipulated by Hamas, and all too many media outlets have been willfully playing along with taking and parroting the Hamas narrative before checking it, before verifying it, and without the necessary caution. And I think that is reckless journalism. And now we know that Hamas uses human shields. For example, they have their bases inside schools and hospitals. Now, regardless of who is behind this attack, realistically, can the IDF avoid civilian casualties? Like any military at war, uh, and especially in urban terrain, Unfortunately, I don't think that civilian casualties can be totally avoided. We try to minimize them. We try to uh, not to strike civilian infrastructure. We focus our military activities only on the military assets of Hamas. Uh, But unfortunately, since our enemies are embedded within the civilian infrastructure, since they use civilian houses and buildings and schools and mosques and hospitals for their fighting, And by the way, we cannot rule out that the very abnormal large amount of casualties from the hospital explosion could be related to something that Hamas was storing underneath or nearby the hospital. Otherwise, it's very difficult to uh, understand how so many people were killed by the remains of one rocket. Uh, But the bottom line is we fight according to the laws of armed conflict. Our enemy is Hamas, not the civilians. And we will defeat Hamas while trying as much as possible to minimize casualties. And on that note, when Hamas reports these casualty numbers, according to IDF intelligence, how credible are those numbers? Extremely doubtful at best. And there is a long documented history of Hamas, the so-called Gaza Health Ministry, which is the Hamas Health Ministry, doctoring numbers and mostly focusing on embedding 
combatants and transforming them into teenagers or just men of a certain military age that died while they were peacefully in their homes uh, and all kinds of other lies. Uh, everything that comes from the Gaza Strip should be treated with extreme caution. And I think that's a wise practice for any source of information. I know that when we report something, we are scrutinized and we are asked to provide evidence for our claims. And that's right. That's how it should be. I, I think that too many times international media gives Hamas a free ride and doesn't hold them to uh, half of the scrutiny that we and others have to go through. And in terms of this war, there's, of course, the kinetic element. But as you mentioned, there's also the media element or the information war. Now we're seeing various reports, especially anti-Israel propaganda coming out of Hamas, Russia and China. China state-run media, CCTV, even put out a video claiming that Israel was decapitating the babies. Now, how seriously is the IDF taking this aspect of the war? Uh, we're taking it very seriously, and you can see how serious we take it by uh, how much we worked in order to get evidence out as fast as possible in order to debunk this Hamas fake about the hospital. Uh, we understand that the situation is volatile. We understand that information is used in order to create realities on the ground to stoke incitement and violence. We saw so-called spontaneous um, clashes in the streets of many Middle Eastern cities in Lebanon, in uh, Jordan, uh, in other parts of Northern Africa. All of that allegedly in response of an event that was a fake event, which was uh, used by Hamas and by our other enemies in order to create instability. I think that the aim of the Hamas uh, fake here was to derail the visit of President Biden uh, and to put everything in the context of humanitarian issues. I think that they failed at that, and I think that the statements made by President Biden are proof of their failure, and also, of course, of the statements by the National Security Council. Now, there's been a lot of reports of how Iran is backing Hamas and these terrorist organizations. Do you know of any evidence of the Chinese Communist Party supporting Hamas through Iran? We know of weapons that have been either purchased or provided. Uh, I do not know of direct intelligence or otherwise military operational links. Uh, Hamas has a lot of homegrown capabilities. They receive lots and lots of money uh, from Iran. They receive standard-grade weapons. Much of the weapons that we uh, uncovered that Hamas terrorists took with them into Israel on the uh, first attack that they did, uh, some of that is standard-grade weapons from Iran, from North Korea. Uh, and from other countries. So there's a mix here, but really the spider in the web is Iran. Had it not been for Iran, then Hamas wouldn't exist, wouldn't have the same uh, military capabilities, wouldn't have the ability to conduct, conduct such a large-scale attack against Israel. Uh, and really all fingers and all eyes should be pointed at Iran. Had it not been for them, the Middle East would have been a much quieter, safer, and more prosperous place. Now, President Biden did visit Israel today, and then he sent $100 million to Gaza on humanitarian grounds. How confident are you that that money won't end up in Hamas's hands? Sadly, I am uh, very skeptical of that. Uh, we will, of course, try, and uh, hopefully authorities in Gaza that are not Hamas, UN organizations, etc., will do the same. 
but there is a long documented history of Hamas abusing civilian humanitarian aid for military purposes. They themselves have shown videos of them unearthing water pipes and using them to build rockets. Uh, all of the tunnels that Hamas has built, the tunnel network, the extensive tunnel network that exists underneath the Gaza Strip was built using cement that was uh, intended for civilian purposes. And the list goes on and on and on. The principle is the same. Hamas knows no boundaries and it uses everything for its military purposes. Uh, we have said if this aid will go to Hamas, if Hamas will take it like they stole fuel from a UN facility a few days ago, and that was reported by the UN, if that happens, we'll destroy it because we are not going to allow sustenance and the enhancement of military capabilities for our enemy. And what about the hostages being held in Gaza? What is the IDF doing to try and rescue them? We are collecting intelligence uh, at all levels. We're pooling the resources that we have in the state of Israel, not only the IDF, but all of the other intelligence organizations that we have. Uh, there is a special national task force which directs the activities. We are collecting information, uh, coming up with a plan, and we have said extremely clearly, we will not rest until all of them are brought back home. That is our commitment. That is our responsibility and duty. And looking more broadly, are there limits to how long Israel can sustain this war? Of course there are. And uh, in any case, without going into limits and how long, etc., of course we aspire for a short, swift, and decisive war with the least amount of casualties in Israel for our troops, but also uh, for civilians suffering in Gaza. They are not our enemy. So the faster and swifter that we can do it, the better. Uh, this could all be, of course, saved, and we could save lots of life if uh, Hamas understood the severity of the situation, returned the hostages without uh, conditions, and uh, went out and surrendered unconditionally. That would save a lot of lives in Gaza, and it would save, would save us the trouble of going in there and getting them. But that doesn't appear to be the state of affairs now with Hamas, which forces us to enhance our operations until, and this is our aim, we completely dismantle Hamas and its military capabilities. Jonathan Conriquez, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The U.S. Embassy in Lebanon still under threat from Hamas supporters. Some reportedly tried setting the embassy on fire. This comes as Iran is threatening Israel, saying the time is up. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more on violent backlash from the Middle East and a warning some of the following footage is violent and may be disturbing. Violent protests continue, threatening the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon on Wednesday. Lebanese security forces had to use tear gas and water cannons to hold them down. Meanwhile in Iraq, supporters of multiple terrorist groups protested near a bridge which leads to the U.S. Embassy. And here you can see protesters in Iran setting the Israeli flag on fire. All of these protests are reactions to a Tuesday explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Hamas blames Israel, although multiple countries, including the United States, found that Gazans are to blame for the explosion. That's because it was a rocket out of Gaza which failed and exploded in the hospital. Meanwhile, the Iranian regime is threatening Israel. On Tuesday night, Iran's foreign minister and the Iranian embassy in Syria both tweeted, Time is up, directed at Israel.
Just a few days ago, Iran already threatened Israel, saying terrorist organizations would open multiple fronts against Israel. On top of that, a former Pentagon official reportedly said this conflict could escalate to a nuclear war. That's if Iran manages to build a nuclear weapon. Meanwhile, Europe is on heightened alert for terrorist attacks. While burning the Israeli flag, some Iranians also protested at the French and British embassies in Iran on Wednesday night. Back in France on Wednesday, eight French airports faced security alerts. Several had to be evacuated for checks. And the famous Palace of Versailles closed again due to its third security scare in five days. In Germany, an attack already took place. Two men tried throwing Molotov cocktails at a Jewish synagogue overnight. Germany's chancellor on Wednesday commenting on the attack in Berlin. It is completely clear that we do not accept this and will never accept it when Jewish institutions are attacked. Events and activities which turn violent or use anti-Semitic slogans will not be accepted. The attackers reportedly missed the synagogue, which is guarded by German police around the clock. No injuries or damage were reported. Arian Pastar, NTD News. On the sidelines of the conflict, a large group of pro-Palestine demonstrators took over Capitol Hill today, both inside and out. They demanded a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. In the Cannon House office building, protesters chanted, let Gaza live, while calling on Congress to take action to help end the fighting. After a warning from the Capitol Police, the protesters were eventually handcuffed and escorted out. Demonstrations are not allowed inside congressional buildings. Police say three people have been charged with assaulting a police officer. Hamas members are now under new sanctions by the U.S., but some Republican lawmakers say it's too late. They blame President Biden's Iran policies for destabilizing the Middle East. The Treasury Department on Wednesday announced new sanctions on 10 Hamas members and operatives. They include those associated with Hamas's secret investment portfolio, two senior Hamas officials, a Gaza-based currency exchange, and its operator. The sanctions block their access to funds held in the U.S. and prevent them from doing business with American people and firms. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen commented, We will continue to take all steps necessary to deny Hamas terrorists the ability to raise and use funds to carry out atrocities and terrorize the people of Israel. And at the United Nations, the U.S. vetoed a Security Council resolution by Brazil on the Israel-Hamas war. Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, commented on the timing of the resolution. We are on the ground doing the hard work of diplomacy. And while we recognize Brazil's desire to move this text forward, we believe we need to let that diplomacy play out. Brazil's resolution calls for humanitarian pauses, in addition to condemning Hamas and all violence against civilians. The ambassador said the U.S. is disappointed this resolution made no mention of Israel's right to self-defense. And back in the Middle East, the Iranian regime, which backs Hamas, now making itself heard in the conflict. In a public address on Wednesday, Iran's president called on Muslim countries to sever diplomatic ties with Israel. Iran's top diplomat also called on Muslim countries to launch an oil embargo on Israel. A group of Republican senators on Wednesday held a press conference to show solidarity with Israel.
Our message to the Israeli people is clear. We stand with you, and we will do all that we can to ensure you can rebuild, defend your land and people, and ensure that Hamas can never, ever do something like this. The senators pointed to Iran's backing of terrorist organizations in the Middle East, calling Hamas an Iran proxy. They accused the Biden administration of implementing a policy of appeasement on Iran, which they said demoralized U.S. allies in the region. The administration can no longer wish away the Iranian threat or attempt to appease the Iranians as they have. The attacks in Israel and recurring attacks against our partners, troops and diplomats are proof of a failed Iran policy. And we must change course quickly before more damage is done by the Iranian regime. As of Wednesday, over 4,800 people have been killed in the war. Hamas put Palestinian deaths at close to 3,500, and Israel said 1,400 of its people were killed. As violence continues to unfold in the Gaza Strip, Washington is working to push through a new ambassador to Israel. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee today holding a confirmation hearing for President Biden's pick, Jacob Liu. Here's his testimony. At this moment, there is no greater mission than to be asked to strengthen the ties between the United States and Israel, to work toward peace in a region that has known so much war and destruction. Liu is proving to be a controversial pick amongst Senate Republicans. He previously served as the Treasury Secretary under the Obama administration. During his tenure, he played a crucial role in securing the Iran nuclear deal. The policy includes lifting U.S. sanctions against Iran, which drew criticisms from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And for that reason, some Senate Republicans are considering slowing down Liu's appointment. The U.S. hasn't had a Senate-confirmed ambassador to Israel since July, when the previous one stepped down. Liu needs to earn 51 votes to secure his new job. That means that it will require all Democrats in the upper chamber to vote for him. And how many rounds of voting is Republican Chairman Jim Jordan willing to go through to become the next Speaker of the House? The Ohio congressman appears to be in it for the long haul, even after falling short again today. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill. Chairman Jim Jordan is not backing down even after failing to gain enough votes to secure the gavel today. Now he's actively working to try to flip some more votes in his direction to prepare for tomorrow's vote at noon. Now of those Jordan supporters that we spoke to after today's vote, they said they're willing to stick with Jordan for as many rounds as he's willing to go for. But regardless of the situation, even those who are supporting Jordan are getting a bit anxious and want to see results fast. Take a look. So my question for the for the eight who started all of this, what was your plan? Um, because you know clearly we're we're now in chaos. It's healthy to have disagreements, um, but there's a point at which like the disagreement becomes dysfunction and paralysis. Does it get better though? Does it get better? And you really have to sit down with the 23 now and say, is there anything that we can do or say to you to get you to flip? There are also active discussions about whether or not to hold a floor vote on a resolution that would expand the speaker pro temp's powers to get some legislative action going while Republicans are still trying to hash this out. Some Republicans are for this, some Republicans are against it. Jim Jordan himself said that he does want to see a vote on this just to get an answer, not necessarily because he agrees with it, just, but just to see where the House is at. But the key here is that 
for this to happen, Republicans would need to work with Democrats, which, which some are just not having. Take a look. Uh, we can't jeopardize uh, uh, any any more delay. We have a, a CR and a budget that needs to be addressed. We've got war in Israel. We've got obviously the concerns in Ukraine. Uh, this is by by far past time that we empower the speaker pro tem so that we can get back to work. No, no. There's, I mean, basically you're turning over the power to the Democrats at that point, and that's not what Republicans should do. We should do our job and select a speaker. The Constitution says that. So any move to do otherwise is contrary to the Constitution and would do enormous damage to not just the Republican Party, but the House of Representatives. Even though we're in this period where members are, are frustrated and want to get back to work, we cannot unveil these other side procedures. Because uh, in this town, once you unveil a side procedure, people tend to want to go back to that again and again and again. So we're not only watching to see how Jordan continues to do in this speakership race, but we're also looking to see whether or not Republicans do choose to move forward with that resolution to expand the speaker pro temp's powers. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. Coming up, wealthy university alumni threatening to cut funding. They say they want university leaders to take a stronger stance on the Israel-Hamas war. Growing unrest in the Middle East has cast a shadow on global financial markets. What will be the impact in the U.S.? And Russian President Putin attending China's Belt and Road Forum in a rare trip abroad. Russia saying common threats are bringing the two countries closer. That and more when we return. Welcome back. Continuing our coverage on the Israel-Hamas war, here at home big money donors are cutting off funds to Ivy League universities. This in response to what they believe are pro-Hamas stances. Here's more. In a barrage of recent backlash, billionaire alumni from Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania are closing their checkbooks. They believe college leaders are failing to take a strong stance against pro-Hamas sentiment on their campuses. At Harvard, retail billionaire Lex Wexner's foundation parted ways. And billionaire hedge fund manager Bill Ackman wanted Harvard to identify students who blamed Israel. But the University of Penn is at the center of the exits. Last week, Mark Rowan, the CEO of Apollo and a Penn alumnus, called on the university's president and the chairman of the board of trustees to resign. He also urged fellow alumni to reduce their usual donations to just one dollar. Alumnus John Huntsman Jr., the former governor of Utah and a former U.S. ambassador to China, said Penn had become deeply adrift. In a letter Huntsman told Penn President Liz McGill, Huntsman Foundation will close its checkbook on all future giving to Penn, something that has been a source of enormous pride for now three generations of graduates. He said his three siblings joined in the rebuke. Amid the backlash, McGill issued her third statement on Wednesday. She condemned Hamas terrorist attacks, blaming them for starting the war, something she didn't say in her first statement last Tuesday. Her updated stance on the war may be too little too late, as a growing number of alumni are pulling up stakes, including billionaire Ronald Lauder of the Estee Lauder Empire and hedge fund veteran David Magerman. Magerman said in a letter that the university needed its moral foundations rebuilt from the ground up. 
McGill has now taken responsibility for the safety and security of the Penn community. She said in her latest statement, Penn will not tolerate and will take immediate action against any incitement to violence or, of course, actual violence. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Growing unrest in the Middle East may prove to be a headwind for global financial markets. Could the Israel-Hamas war impede economic growth and become an obstacle to reducing inflation? We spoke with NTD Business's host Don Ma for details. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be back on the show. Yeah, always great to be here. Don, to begin, how could this Israel-Hamas war impact the U.S. markets? Well, the first thing a lot of people are concerned about is oil prices, right? Uh, they have been on the rise. Markets factor in risk premiums after a blast at a Gaza City hospital on Tuesday. Uh, investors are uneasy about the risk of a potential widening conflict in the Middle East as well. And in the spotlight uh, right now is the potential for Iran to become more involved. And the U.S. then would have to respond with potentially sanctions on Iranian oil. Uh, some analysts are saying that crackdown on Iranian oil uh, exports could immediately remove somewhere from one to two million barrels per day off the market almost instantly. And if that happens, you know, obviously that would send prices even higher. Quite concerning indeed. And besides the oil market, what would be the impact on the stock market more broadly? Right. Uh, you know, if this conflict uh, remains limited to a confrontation uh, or uh, between the, the two sides right now, or it develops into a broader conflict, um, that's going to have some implications for the market. But right now, because it's contained, uh, market reaction has been modest so far. Uh, but however, there are, there are still some degree of impact. For example, uh, Israeli stocks listed in New York and Tel Aviv have fallen due to the war. And Israel as well may have an outsized influence on the U.S. stock market because more than 100 Israeli companies are listed on U.S. exchanges uh, with a combined market cap of more than $150 billion. And as well, uh, Israel has the fourth most companies listed on the Nasdaq. Um, and, you know, funds in the U.S. hold more than $43 billion in Israeli stocks uh, and bonds as well. This is according to a Bloomberg tracker. So let me just give you a couple of examples here of the actual impact the war has had. Um, shares of autonomous vehicle chip maker Mobile Eye Global, um, this is the largest company uh, in Israel uh, based on market cap. It has fallen by about 9% over the past uh, five trading days. And as well, another Tower Semiconductor, uh, this is another chip maker uh, based in Israel, fell about 4.3% over the same period. So it does have an impact. And Don, here in America, many people are still feeling the impacts of inflation, at least at the grocery store. Will this war have an impact on inflation here? So I, I want to look into uh, the past a little bit. From what we've seen uh, last year with the Ukraine war, oil prices briefly hit $139 after Russia's invasion. And that, in fact, did add to inflation. So some analysts are saying that if Iran gets involved, that could mean higher commodity prices, 
higher external shocks, and this is a trigger potentially for a, a more inflationary outlook. But, you know, if the war remains confined uh, between Israel and Palestinians, it's likely that, you know, markets will just forget about this after a short period of time. So it remains to be seen. Uh, it, it largely depends on whether this will be contained or not. Mm. Well, Don Ma, thanks for your insights. Yeah, thank you, as always. Russia and China pledging solidarity as war grips the Middle East. Putin saying common threats are bringing the two countries closer together. He's in Beijing for China's Belt and Road Forum. Let's take a closer look. A one-to-one -one conversation between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Besides praising Xi's Belt and Road Infrastructure Initiative, Putin emphasized greater coordination with China. In the current difficult conditions, close foreign policy coordination is especially necessary, which is what we are doing, and today we'll discuss all of this, including our bilateral relations. Cross-border trade between the two countries is also on the rise. Putin said trade volume between them could surpass 200 billion this year. Putin said his meeting with Xi spanned three hours. It covered topics including economy, political interaction and joint work on international platforms. The two also discussed the situations in the Middle East and Ukraine. Putin says common threats will only strengthen cooperation between Moscow and Beijing. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping praised strengthening ties between China and Russia, saying bilateral trade has reached an all-time high. Xi said the two nations are moving toward a goal of $200 billion in trade. As for political partnership, the Chinese leader reminded Putin that they have met 42 times over the past decade. And a rare image, as President Putin arrived in Beijing, he was filmed with military officers while carrying a nuclear briefcase. The briefcase is with Putin at all times, but is rarely filmed. The U.S. president also has such a device. It holds secure phone capabilities that would allow the leader to authorize a nuclear strike. Worth noting, the Russian parliament just agreed to revoke approval of a global nuclear test ban treaty. Moscow describes the move as putting it on par with Washington. Coming up, a Mideast analyst joins us to deconstruct conflicting narratives in the Israel-Hamas war. Are some journalists being too quick to accept one side of the story? And what caused the blast at the Gaza hospital? We look at how often Hamas's homemade rockets misfire and how many Palestinians they have killed after the break. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. President Biden visited Israel and met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to show solidarity. U.S. intelligence confirmed Israel's claim that the rocket that hit the Gaza hospital didn't come from Israel. The Treasury Department announced new sanctions on 10 Hamas members and operatives, while a group of GOP senators blamed the Biden administration's Iran policies for emboldening terrorists. 
Congressman Jim Jordan failed to secure the gavel on his second try, and this time two additional Republicans voted against him. Jordan doesn't expect any more votes today, but he is staying in the speaker's race. Russian President Vladimir Putin traveled to Beijing and met with Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the Belt and Road Forum. The leaders discussed the war in the Middle East as well as deepening relations between their two countries. Underlying the military conflict between Israel and Hamas is a conflict between narratives. We're joined by a Middle East analyst who says some journalists are taking days to believe one side of the story, but only minutes to accept the other. David Wormser, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Well, it's great to be with you. Thank you. To begin, President Biden has vowed unwavering support for Israel. He was just there on the trip this morning, and then he sent $100 million to Gaza. That's on humanitarian grounds. How do we know where this money is going to be end up used? Well, that's the rub, of course. You're absolutely right. That's a great question. We really don't. And we know that Hamas has used every humanitarian assistance to arm itself, even when when pipes, uh, water pipes were sent to bring water to Gaza, they dug them up and they cut them up and they used them as missile fuselages. So uh, there's no way of knowing that it won't be misused. But I'm not sure the Israelis are that worried about it because I think they really intend to go all the way with Hamas and Gaza right now. So I don't think they think there's a long-term threat in that. And now, speaking of Gaza, we're hearing conflicting reports about this potential hospital explosion yesterday, both sides blaming each other. We don't know how many are dead. What's your understanding of what actually happened? Well, there was definitely an explosion there yesterday. It definitely killed probably a couple dozen people, not a couple hundred. Uh, And what we can see, the Israelis were very slow to react. So the Hamas issued this thing that the Israelis did a strike on the hospital. They intentionally killed people. They even made up fake uh, uh, statements that the Israelis had made about the hospital will be bombed and so forth. But the Israelis were slow because they were being meticulous. So they put together all their intelligence and they put together all the security cameras and films they could get that had vision of that area and so on and so forth. And when they pieced it together, it was very clear. Uh, but And even intercepts uh, where Hamas was talking among itself, saying, oh, one of our missiles blew up and fell on ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. So um, they, they have all the intelligence, and they've released it to prove that the missile was actually a Palestinian Islamic Jihad missile that, that was shot up from a cemetery behind the hospital uh, stalled and fell back to earth and, and blew up on, on impact back to when it came back down on the hospital. So it's a self-inflicted wound. That is also what the White House National Security Council spokesperson is saying that the U.S. intelligence is showing. But some experts are saying no matter what the intelligence is showing, the media or the world narrative is that Israel will take the blame. How do you see these two different narratives? Well, it's it's really kind of stunning that um, it took five days for some press. American press was actually really good. But there were some journalists in Europe and certainly in the Middle East who just didn't believe that the massacres of civilians took place for five days. Even when the Israelis provided pictures, they didn't believe it. And even when foreign journalists came to see firsthand the massacres 
and what happened. They still didn't, others didn't believe the other journalists. Those same journalists who didn't buy for five days that Israel suffered a massacre at the hands of Hamas, within minutes accepted wholesale the Hamas version of what happened with the missile. So, I, I mean, there's just, uh, there's just some who, who will do that. But really, the American press was largely responsible once the facts came out. Uh, almost all the press uh, came around and said, listen, it's pretty uncontrovertible. So I, I, think, I think basically the American press ultimately acquitted itself pretty good. A bit of the European press did. Uh, but, but at this point, I think President Biden said what, he, what, what was inevitable, uh, even American intelligence. This was pretty clear. And speaking of that, we're hearing calls for Israel to have a proportionate response to what's happened. What would that even look like? Yeah, I'm not even sure what it looks like, because what happened on Saturday morning a week ago involved such horrible atrocities. I don't even want to describe them. But really, the ultimate imagination of human depravity was on display. How do you proportionately respond to that? I mean, the Israeli army doesn't do such things, so it's not like they're going to go and do this depravity. So I, I think the proportional response is to ensure that such, uh, quite frankly, sadistic uh, slaughter cannot happen again. I think the proportionate response is essentially to, to ensure that this cannot happen again, and that means that Hamas essentially no longer exists in the Gaza Strip. And you mentioned Iran, and now there's also some reports noting communist China's influence or stake in the area. We see them criticizing Israel, saying they went beyond self-defense. This is even before a potential ground offensive. What's your understanding of what the Chinese Communist Party's stake is in this region? Well, I think on one level, just like the Ukraine war, they see themselves as the big winners. When, it, when Israel's going to war in the West and in general is bogged down in the Middle East, uh, you know, for the, from, from their point of view, Taiwan, South Korea, all a little bit more vulnerable. Second of all, the United States and its allies are bleeding, which is good for them. So they, I think they're a bit encouraged by this. But the second thing is they, they, they want to maintain their influence in the Middle East and they have strong relations with Iran, they have strong intelligence sharing. So they, to some extent, took part in this, not directly, but they gave some of the cyber support. Part of this invasion a week ago and massacre involved a cyber attack apparently as well. Uh, really stuff that the Chinese are experts at and probably taught or assisted the Iranians. A lot of the new technologies that the Israelis are uncovering Hamas had from Iran might have been North Korean, Chinese design. So they're, they're definitely here, and they're definitely not on the right side here. And I, I think it's a general Chinese policy is to bog down America and its allies wherever possible and make them bleed. David Wormser, thank you so much for your time. Missiles from Palestinian terrorists actually misfire quite often. In a single month in 2021, around 25% of them landed in their own territory, killing their own people. NTD's Emma Shee has more. They shot it coming from the cemetery behind the Al-Mamdani hospital, and it misfired and fell on them. They're saying that the shrapnel from the missile is local shrapnel and not like Israeli shrapnel. 
The Israel Defense Forces released what they say is a recording of Palestinian terrorists discussing how their own missile malfunctioned and landed on a hospital in Gaza. Rockets made by Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad actually misfire quite frequently. In May 2021, around 25% of their rockets malfunctioned and crashed inside Gaza, killing around 50 Palestinians. Hamas blamed Israel. We have seen uh, those are handmade missiles of that type, and they've been very common during most conflicts. They don't have a very long range, but in terms of volume, they're indispensable uh, in just creating this mass attack. Geopolitical analyst Irina Sukerman says some of these rockets are made from imported parts. Some are even homemade. This video, released by Hamas, shows operatives digging up pipes and using them to make rockets. Hamas is known for using what's called the Ghassam rocket. It's usually made from civilian products such as pipes. A small explosive is placed near the tip, and a set of wings is placed at the bottom for stability. Each rocket can cost up to $800. There's no way to aim these rockets. You can only point them in a general direction. The rockets also have a high risk of malfunctioning. They're starting to get more sophisticated missiles from outside the country. Uh, uh, there is uh, Some of these rockets are Chinese-made. We have not seen evidence of direct transfer, but we have seen Chinese-made uh, uh, rockets. Sukerman says China is a major arms supplier to the Middle East, and it wouldn't be hard for their rockets to make their way to Hamas. Emma Shi, NTD News. Coming up, will a new NCAA president mean new policies in women's sports? A former collegiate swimmer weighs in on the early returns. Stay for that after the break. Welcome back. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the fight over transgender athletes in women's sports. That's right, Tiff. New NCAA president Charlie Baker took his office this past March, and with it, many hoped the former Republican governor of Massachusetts would reverse whatever rule has allowed biological men to compete in women's sports and even changing their locker rooms. Baker, though, mostly danced around the issue yesterday when questioned at a Senate hearing by Josh Hawley. What I will say is we have very specific rules and standards around the safety and security of all our student athletes, and anyone who hosts one of our national championships has to, know, has to accept that they know what they are and then abide by them accordingly. But, and, and does that include female athletes having to share locker rooms with biological males not being warned or consent do they are they asked for their consent i don't believe that um i don't believe that policy uh would be the policy we would use today now one person who apparently wasn't impressed with baker's response was former ncaa swimmer riley Gaines. Gaines had previously testified this past summer about not only having to compete against but also changed in the same locker room with a biological male in a tearful testimony. The athlete turned activist said on her podcast this week, quote, the guidelines he mentioned in this week's Senate Judiciary hearing are no less harmful to women, no less discriminatory to women than those in 2022. Without single-sex competition, there can be no equal athletic opportunity. 
And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, it's game three of the ALCS as the Houston Astros, who are down 0-2, face the Texas Rangers, looking to finally get on the board. They face a tall task, though, against three-time Cy Young winner Max Scherzer, who's making his return from injury. Houston, meanwhile, will counter with Christian Javier. And that's it for your sports news today. Tiff, back to you. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.